how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Written by Penn Gillette of magician duo Penn and Teller, Director's Cut is the unusual story of Herbert Blount. The aspiring director wants to make a movie on his own, so he kidnaps the lead actress of a crowdfunded film and inflicts horror upon her. Director Adam Rifkin got interested in filmmaking and horror storytelling thanks to Chicago's own Svengoli spoofster. Rifkin is also known for Look, Chillerama, and The Last Movie Star, which features icon Burt Reynolds. In this interview, Rifkin talks about his early influences like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Smoking the Bandit, along with unusual conversation that led to Director's Cut, the intrigue of an unreliable narrator, the intimacy of a Director's Cut commentary, and his overall experience with crowdfunding and independent film. Uh, well, when I was uh, a really little kid, my first love of movies was a love of monster movies. I can remember probably four or five years old, I was introduced to the concept from my grandfather who bought me a, a magazine which no longer exists called Famous Monsters. And uh, in that magazine, there were uh, great old studio photos, uh, you know, uh, publicity photos of all the old uh, universal monster mo movies and monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, stuff like that. And I remember just being absolutely mesmerized by the by the faces and that got me on this monster movie path and uh, my first film education i'm from chicago was a local horror show host named sven Gulli. and he would uh you know in in the old days of television all the local markets had a, a horror show host who would um introduce scary movies on a Saturday night and between the commercial breaks do funny shtick and talk about the movie and do trivia about the movie and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, New York had Zachary, L.A. had Elvira, Chicago had Svengooley. Svengooley's actually still doing it. He's the only one left in the country still doing it. But anyway, so on Svengooley, I would see all the great Universal Monster movies. I'd see the Hammer Horror films from England. I'd see the uh, AIP drive-in films. I'd see the uh, the uh, Japanese giant monster movies, and I knew that movies were made 
in a, in mostly in a place called Hollywood. I didn't know at that time what a director was or a producer was or that movies were actually written before they were made. I just knew movies got made and I was going to do it someday. And that's when I decided uh, there was nothing else for me to do. And so then I started making movies my whole childhood with, you know, I commandeered the family movie camera, started making movies with my friends. I've just heard recently like a reference to Svengoli. Was that kind of like pre, you know, what led to Mystery Science Theater, possibly something like that? I don't know if that was a direct uh, reference, uh, excuse me, that was a direct line to Mystery Science, Mystery, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, uh, I don't know. I, I will tell you that uh, Svengoli is, is, even though Svengoli is the last one, in in uh, lo- in the heyday of local television, it almost seemed like every market around the country had their own version of a Svengoli. They all had their own. Uh, I remember for a brief period of time, our family lived in Boston, and there was a guy in Boston named Simon's Sanctorum. Uh, there's there was just a ton of them. So, did you kind of have? Was it like? Did you, I know you understand that you appreciated the monsters? Was was it also like some comedy of listening to the the announcers? Did that kind of work its way into the, the genre that you now create? Well, you know, Sven Gulli was a big re- uh, influence on me, not just because I saw great movies, but also he is a really smart comedy writer, and his comedy shtick was very entertaining and funny to me. So, yes, I was influenced by the movies, but also by uh, the comedy of Sven Gulli as well. And, you know, listen, this, uh, this got me on a path to just digesting all kinds of movies eventually. You know, I mean... This love of monster movies evolved into a love of all kinds of movies, and then other influences that I uh, that I took in around you know the the that age as I started to explore more movies. I mean, I then I started getting into the Monty Python films, and I started getting into um, you know the you know I, I the movie that really kind of changed my life and made me realize that movies can not only be entertaining, but can also change your worldview and, and affect you emotionally, was when I saw One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That movie really blew me away. Before we dive into you know the, the new movie you've got coming out, let's talk about, you just made uh, the last movie, Star Lad, I think it came out last year. What kind of sparked that idea and led to that story with Burt Reynolds? Well, around the time that I was telling you about that I was sort of digesting movies, like a, you know just basically soaking up movies like a sponge, um, I saw Smokey and the Bandit, uh, and I just thought Burt Reynolds was the coolest guy in the world. And at that time, Burt Reynolds was the biggest movie star on earth. And he just seemed like he had the most fun being famous of anybody ever. And so Burt Reynolds became my hero as a kid. Uh, and I always felt that Burt Reynolds never got his due as an actor. He's a brilliant actor, but his his larger-than-life movie star persona kind of overshadowed his acting. So people never took him seriously enough as an actor, in my opinion. Uh, but if you look at performances in movies like Deliverance and The Longest Yard and Starting Over, he's a brilliant actor. And even when he does you know, movies that are more fluff, he never delivers a false note, ever. So I, you know, at this point, stage of my career and my life, I thought to myself, you know, I still love Burt Reynolds, but I don't feel that he's getting the love from everybody else that he deserves. And I wanted to create a role for him that would give him a chance to sink his teeth 
into something substantial for the first time in a while. And I also wanted to use it as an excuse to get to know my childhood hero. So I didn't, I didn't know him. I'd never met him, but I rolled the dice. I wrote the last movie star for him specifically. And I submitted it to his manager. And I said to his manager, please tell Bert that if he doesn't want to do this movie, I'm not making it. I only wrote it for Bert. And I meant it. And, uh, the manager said, I'll send it to him. I can't promise you what Bert will say. I mean, Bert does what Bert does. But the next day I get a call from Bert, and I recognized his voice immediately. And I never get starstruck, but when I heard Bert Reynolds' voice, I was completely starstruck. Uh, and uh, he said that he'll do it, and it just changed everything. And he was working with him was fantastic. He's the coolest guy. It seems like, at least with these you know, last two films you've made, there's it's been almost like a different type of coincidence in the in the Hollywood scheme. Like I've read that uh, Penn of Penn and Teller, who wrote this new script, contacted you kind of out of the blue. What did he say, and what inspired you to kind of jump on board and, and take this new project uh, for director's cut? Well, he had uh, seen a film I directed and wrote called Look, which is a drama that is all shot from the point of view of surveillance cameras. And he reached out to me on, on uh, Facebook in a private message and said that, uh, I had, uh, he said that he, he said some really complimentary things about the movie, which was very nice. And he said that he'd love to talk to me about it. And he left his phone number. Was, uh, this was on a Friday night. And I wrote him back thinking it was probably too late to call. And I said, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of yours. It means a lot to me coming from you that you like the movie. I don't want to bother you on a Friday night. Here's my phone number. Call me anytime over the weekend. And then he called me right then and there. I sent send, and two seconds later, my phone rang. And uh, he, was, uh, he really got what I was trying to do with Look. And, and he said, and because of that, I wrote a script that I... I really want you to direct and I can't think of anybody else now that I've seen look that I would want to direct this script and he told me a little bit about director's cut and it sounded very unusual I said please send it to me I'd love to read it so he sent it to me right then he emailed it to me and I read it immediately and by three o'clock in the morning we were back on the phone and I said to him I just don't know how I could say no to this it's so unique I mean as a filmmaker when do you ever get a chance to do two movies in one I mean it's an opportunity to do a a really slick taut B thriller you know that you know that's supposed to look like a rip off of movies like Seven and and I also get to do what's supposed to look like an amateur weirdo psycho uh, do-it-yourself movie shot in a basement with a camcorder by a, a talentless stalker freak uh, and somehow figure out a way to fan edit them together and create this mashup that the movie's villain releases to the world uh, as his quote-unquote director's cut. Uh, how, how could I say no to that? So that's when I agreed to jump on. But we pretty much agreed immediately that this would be a very difficult movie to get funded because it's just, it's so weird. So uh, sometime after that, not not call, but sometime after that, it was Penn that was the first one who mentioned crowdfunding. He said, why don't we try to crowdfund this movie? Uh, he said, who knows? Maybe it'll work. I said, great, I'm game. So 
we, we asked for some money from some of the fans out there who we hoped might want to see it, and we actually raised more money than we were looking for. And so we got a chance to make the movie with absolutely no studio interference and no compromise. We made it exactly the way we wanted, for better or for worse, by the way, because it is such an unusual film that it was it was next to impossible to find a distributor. I mean, the movie opened the Slamdance Film Festival of 2016. Every buyer who saw it said, we like it, we see that the audience likes it, but we have no idea how to sell it. We don't even know how to explain this movie to somebody. Um, so cut to, you know, just very recently, um, Epic Pictures bought Dread Central and they launched a sub-label called Dread Central Presents and the curator, uh, head of acquisitions and basically overall uh, Dread Central Presents boss man is a fellow named Rob Galuzzo, who we've never met, but we had mutual friends in common. So when I read the article that Dread Central Presents was a, a new entity and that they were looking to acquire horror films, I reached out to him on Twitter. Excuse me. I reached out to him on Facebook and I said, uh, you know, I made this movie and I know you're looking for movies and every distributor who has ever seen it has been scared to touch it. And we're on the precipice of just, you know, releasing it ourselves. But before we do it, I just wanted to send it to you as our one last stop to see, you know, if, if there's any chance you might want to check it out and maybe take it on. And he saw it and he wrote me back. He said, this movie is bonkers. I have no idea to sell, how to sell it, but I don't care that it's a tough sell. I, I want to show everybody that this movie can be distributed and be successful. I want it. And that's how we got in business with them. And it's been fantastic ever since. Can you, so when you read this script the first time, did he do something like on, on paper to, you know, characterize the two versions or did you guys storyboard two different stories? Or was it just like a, a stylistic thing on set each individual day of how to make, you know, two movies in one? Well, it was, it was delineated in the script, what was supposed to look slick and professional and what was supposed to look amateur and camcorder-ish, video-y, you know, it was, it was described. Um, but, you know, as, as with any film, as you're making the film and as you're shoot, as you're prepping it and as you're shooting it and as you're editing it, it, it evolves, you know? So the first iteration of the script, it was much more of a straight up horror film, very brutal Penn's character kidnaps this actress and terrorizes her and brutalizes her and forces her to act in this amateur film. Um, but when we cast Missy Pyle in the movie, she's so funny and she's so light and she's so lovable. We thought it just won't be fun to watch her getting tortured. It, it'd be much more fun to watch her being obsessed over and revered and loved by this, this uh, nut who has absolutely terrible social skills and his ill-conceived notion of how to woo her is to kidnap her and, and force her to star in his movie where he gets to play her romantic hero. And it really became much more of a sort of twisted version of Phantom of the Opera at that point, rather than a movie like Saw, you know? Um, and so he, you know, so suddenly Penn's character becomes more lovable as, as the misunderstood monster, as opposed to just the straight up monster. And so that's how the movie became more of a black comedy than a straight horror film. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, the delineation between what was supposed to look like it was professionally shot and what was supposed to look like it was amateur footage, that was, that was described in, this, in the original script. 
I'm sure you know Penn and Teller have been in in the media for forever now. I'm they've had their own unusual circumstances with fans over time, likely. But did he say you know where this idea came from? Was it inspired from a movie or just something he started working on? Did he say where that initial spark came from? Yeah, well, the stories I've heard him tell in other Q and As that we've done at film festivals is that he was very inspired by the idea of the the literary trope known as the unreliable narrator. And and he also really liked the intimacy of the director's commentary tracks on film and how the, the that just that quiet uh, studio sound and the, the 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 director's voice being right right there on mic and it's feeling the, the just the, the quality of the audio felt very intimate and as a result, you're just you absolutely feel that whatever that director is saying is very believable, and you agree with them, and you and you go along with anything they're saying, and you believe them. And he liked the idea of taking that director's commentary and subverting it, and turning the director's commentary into the unreliable narrator conceit. And if you're watching a film that has a director's commentary over it. And the director's commentary is, is the narrative device that is taking you down this twisted rabbit hole. Uh, that's what sort of got him into the idea. And he was told by people that that's an impossible idea to express in a film. And he was determined to prove them wrong. So he wrote the script. Well, how, is this your first experience with crowdfunding? How did that go? What did, what did you guys kind of have to do? I assume you helped his platform and, and media, things like that, helped to get started. What, what were some of the things you did to push the you know story forward and get it crowdfunded? It was my first experience with crowdfunding. Uh, we collaborated from the beginning on it. We created a, uh, a very elaborate campaign video, a pitch video, uh, you know, to do crowdfunding effectively, you really have to work it all day, every day for the entirety of the campaign. You can't, you can't just tweet a couple of times uh, that you're having a crowdfunding campaign and expect it to be successful. You have to approach it like you're running for mayor, and you have to really rally your troops, and you have to, you know, you have to you have to pimp your campaign constantly. Um, we definitely were boosted by the fact that Penn is a celebrity and that he has celebrity friends. You know, Penn got a lot of his celebrity friends to do um, celebrity videos for us to help draw attention to the campaign. Penn did a ton of interviews. He he pimped it a lot on his podcast. I did as many interviews as I could. I pushed it on my social media as much as I could. But, I mean, my my number of followers is minimal. I mean, Penn has over well over 2 million Twitter followers alone. So that made it very helpful. But, you know, for, for a while, we, we weren't sure it was going to work. I mean, we raised a bunch of money the first couple of days, but not anywhere near what we were looking for. And then it really became a, uh, a full-time job working the campaign all day, every day, until we, little by little, inched our way up to our, our goal amount and then actually over it. But I would do it again in a minute. I mean, this has been a great way to get a movie made and a great way to make a movie with complete freedom. And you're making the movie for the people who you know want to see it. So you're, you've got a built-in audience, which is really an interesting way to, to approach it. And it's hard to, get into, it's hard to get any movie made, but it's particularly hard to get independent movies made these days. And so crowdfunding, I think, as an alternate 
source for funding for films is a really exciting way to go. Just got one or two more. Is there anything uh, without the student, you know, you have a studio there telling you what to do, what not to do, what to change. Were there any points where you were, you know, checking in with each other? Like, is this too far? Is this, is this in the same direction? Or how do you kind of go about those either as director and writer or director and actor? Oh, that's, that's a concept that uh, applies throughout the entire production on, on any movie for me. I mean, I, I would never want to be surrounded by people who yes me. I want honest assessments from the people I, I surround myself with. So working with Pam, I mean, we're very honest with each other. So we were always keeping each other in check the whole way through because we want the movie to be the best movie it can be, not just go off in some crazy direction just because we have the freedom to do it. So it requires discipline and it requires openness to listening to each other's honest appraisals and trying to keep the movie uh, on authentic and on the track that we that we set out to stay on from the beginning. So yes, we 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 kept each other in check all the way through. Well, thank you for your time. Is there anything else you know for our listeners? Um, anything else you'd like to say about the movie or where they can find out more information or see a showing and everything else? Well, anybody who wants to see it should absolutely check it out immediately on VOD. It is available on all the VOD platforms. I encourage people to please not only watch it, but review it, rate it on IMDb, on Amazon, on anywhere that you, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes, anywhere people want to, you know, like to review movies that they've seen, please. The more we can get the word out about this movie, the better. I mean, it is a small movie. It is an unusual movie. It's even though we have this great distributor getting these little movies out there and getting on the scene is always a challenge. So please help us in, in the, getting the word out about the movie. And there's a packed to the gills, Blu-ray DVD combo pack coming out in about two weeks. So if you're a collector, you're definitely going to want to get a copy of it. You can pre-order it on the Epic Pictures website now. Um, so please check it out. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter. We also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset, step two, how to create a killer profile, and step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.